Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And do you remember way back last September, we started talking about A Night Right on Elm Street 1 and 2? <gasps> I kind of do. Well, guess what? What? We're going to continue that and talk about one of the most fabulous, amazing movies ever set to film. Fabulous? Wasn't it the last one? I mean... The gay one? In a gay sense, you're right. I should come up with a different adjective. But finally, in the five years that we've been doing this podcast... Wasn't that also the butt one? That is the butt one. What? There's no butts in this one. You're right. Anyway, we're talking about A Night Right on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Oh, Okay. Uh, this is the first horror movie that I ever like completely latched onto and became obsessed with. Really? Way back when I was like seven or eight years old. However, I was when this came out. Oh, so your nostalgia boner is very, very strong. My nostalgia boner is throbbing for this movie. <laughs> I have seen this movie. I couldn't even count, begin to count the number of times I've seen this movie. Full transparency, it was... Robert's turn to write the synopsis and me read it. Because that's our shtick, right? Yep. Uh, you know, we read synopsis that the other hasn't read yet. <laughs> and they're hilarious. And we react. That's right. <laughs> so I had to write it because he was afraid that he could not be, you know, that he was going to be a little too reverent. It was going to end up being like, I don't know, Walden or something. Probably. This is my Walden. <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, so I wrote it instead. So I don't know. Maybe it'll be clenching your teeth instead of laughing through this one i don't know we'll no learn a lesson we'll learn a le- valuable lesson like earlier today i was starting to think about it i was like can i be objective about this movie and think about it like as an actual movie and not something that i love or hold very very dear you know and i feel like i can but if i start being a little too reverent and i start like oh it's so perfect and there are no flaws and blah 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 blah, blah then i want you to come across this table and beat me. You're probably going to come across this table and beat me because I have zero reverence. For oh, this movie. That's that's fine. We're going to see this movie out. until I was like well into my 20s, probably. Oh, so when this movie came out on VHS, I rented it every single weekend for like a year and a half. Okay. Well, around that time, I was renting like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles live action movie or whatever, oh. and um, that's what I was watching on repeat because I wasn't allowed to watch, you know, the horrors. Uh, I was. I was eight years old or whatever watching some busty nurse take her clothes off and spit tongues at people that was my childhood okay <laughs> and look at the person i turned out to be today i did excellently critters and aliens and so that tells you everything you need about my tastes but anyway a nightmare in elm street three dream warriors is a 1987 american fantasy slasher film directed by chuck russell the story was developed by Wes Craven and Bruce Wagner with a screenplay that included the talents of Frank Darabont. Yay! It's the third installment in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, obviously, and the film stars Heather Longenkamp, Patricia Arquette, Larry, as he was credited, or as we know him, Lawrence Fishburne, Priscilla Pointer, Craig Wasson, and Robert England as the primetime star maker Freddy Krueger. <laughs> the music for the film was composed by Angelo Badalamenti of Twin Peaks fame, with the theme song titled Dream Warriors, performed by the American heavy metal band Dawkins. We're the Dream Warriors, don't want to dream no more. A terrible song. <laughs> The film's plot centers around a group of young adults who have been committed to a psychiatric hospital where Nancy Thompson, our heroine from the first film, works as an intern. 
Krueger, an undead supernatural serial killer who can murder people through their dreams, seeks to slaughter the teenagers as they are the last remaining children of the parents who burned him to death. The film is considered to be by many to be a return to form after Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and also one of the best films in the Elm Street franchise. Okay, listeners. Welcome to primetime, bitches. This is Dream Warriors. Finally. <laughs> Five years in. <laughs> you're finally your, your favorite horror movie. Well, your favorite comfort horror movie. We'll say that. Yeah. It's all down here from here. It's 1987. Do you know where Freddy is? There's no waking up from this nightmare. A Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 3, Dream Warriors. In 1987, two years after Nancy, her mother, and all of her friends have died by Freddy's finger-banging, teenager Kristen Parker, played by Patricia Arquette, dreams that Freddy Krueger is chasing her. He attacks her in her bathroom after she thinks she's already awoken, making it look to her mother as though she has slit her wrists in the real world. Believing Kristen to be suicidal and not wanting to deal with all that... Her mother admits her to Weston Hills Psychiatric Hospital, where she is placed under the care of Dr. Neil Gordon, played by Craig Wasson. At the hospital, Kristen violently fights the orderlies who try to sedate her because she fears falling asleep. The new intern therapist at the hospital, Nancy Thompson, played by Heather Langenkamp, who has apparently come back to life, but this time as an actress made of wood. <laughs> calms Kristen down and befriends her by reciting part of Freddy's nursery rhyme. Nancy is introduced to the rest of Dr. Gordon's patients. Philip, a sarcastic sleepwalker. Kincaid, a strong black man who don't need no man. <laughs> Jennifer, a hopeful television actress who loves to give herself cigarette burns to stay awake. Will, resident geek and dungeon master extraordinaire who uses a wheelchair due to his prior suicide attempt, Taryn, a recovering drug addict and aspiring punk bitch, and Joey, the youngest, who is too traumatized to speak. So much trauma. One night, Freddy attacks Kristen in her dreams, but she unwittingly pulls Nancy into her dream, allowing them to escape. Kristen reveals that she has been able to pull people into her dreams since she was young. Over the next two nights, Freddy throws Philip off a roof by puppeteering him by his veins in the dream world and kills Jennifer by smashing her head into a television. Welcome to prime time, bitch. In their next group session, Nancy reveals to the remaining patients that they are the last of the Elm Street kids, the surviving children of their parents who banded together and burned Freddy Krueger to death many years ago. Both Nancy and Neil encourage them to try group hypnosis so they can experience a shared dream and discover their dream powers. <laughs> In the dream, Joey wanders off and is captured by Freddy disguised as a buxom nurse babe, leaving him comatose in the real world, leaving him literally 
tongue-tied in the dream world. Since two kids are dead and another's comatose, Nancy and Neil are relieved of duty. A nun named Sister Mary Helena tells Neil that Freddie was the son of a young woman on the hospital staff who was accidentally locked in a room with hundreds of mental patients who raped her hundreds of times. Freddie is the culmination of the combined seed of hundreds of criminally insane men's. She explains that the only way to stop him is to get him laid. <laughs> um, lay his bone to rest. Bones. Bones to rest. Neil and Nancy ask her father, Officer Donald Thompson, played by John Saxon, where Freddie's bones are hidden. But he is drunk and uncooperative. Nancy finally gives up on getting through to her father after trying for dozens of seconds. For dozens of seconds, and rushes back to the hospital where she learns that Kristen has been sedated and placed in a padded cell. Neil stays behind to convince Officer Daddy Donald to help them. Eventually, he agrees, and they make their way to the local junkyard, where Freddy's remains remain at the remains of the day. <laughs> back at the hospital, instead of simply breaking Kristen out of the padded cell... Nancy and the others engage in another tedious round of group hypnosis to reunite with Kristen in the dream world, but they are all separated by Freddy. Taryn and her stupid, tiny knives are killed by Freddy's finger syringes, and Will is embarrassingly ended by Freddy after he roleplays as a big, geeky wizard. Meanwhile, Kristen, Nancy, and Kincaid find one another somehow. The trio rescues Joey, who was still tongue-tied by Freddy, and hung next to a giant, gaping hole but are unable to ultimately defeat Freddy because he has become too powerful due to the souls he has absorbed, as evidenced by his screaming chesticles. Sensing that his remains have been found by Officer Danny Donald and Neil at the junkyard, Freddy leaves the dream, animates his own skeleton, and kills Donald with it before incapacitating Neil with his giant hole. <laughs> Freddy returns to the dream to re resume his attack on the kiddos, but Joey uses his dream power of voice and agency to repel him. <laughs> oh, his power is talking. <laughs> Officer Danny Donald appears to Nancy as a sparkly spirit to tell her that he is crossing over, but he is revealed to be Freddy and stabs Nancy in the stomach, tossing her aside. Freddy, believing that Nancy is dead, comes after Kristen, but still alive and apparently unkillable. Nancy jumps and finger bangs him with his own bladed glove. <laughs> Meanwhile, back at the junkyard, Neil manages to recover and purify Freddy's bones with holy water, killing him. We swear. <laughs> after, after Nancy dies, sure, uh-huh, Kristen manages to awaken everybody and return them to the real world. During Nancy's funeral, Neil finds Amanda Kruger's tombstone and discovers that she was Sister Mary Helena. That evening, he goes to sleep with a Malaysian dream doll Nancy gave him and Kristen's paper mache house nearby. Suddenly, Kristen's house lights up from the inside, suggesting that Freddy may not be completely defeated, for the dead can never die. Or something. <laughs> The end. <laughs> Wasn't too painful, right? No, that was good. Good. Much better than I could have done. It would have been just like a fucking novel. A tome. 
It would have a Dickensian proclivity and all that. Probably. This is like one of the few movies that I could have written the synopsis for without having watched it. Mm. Like, I'm fairly certain I could have done this entire episode without having watched it last night. But I did. Yeah. Because one can never see this movie too many times. That's true. Mm -hmm. At least for me. Dream Warriors was released on February 27th, 1987 on 1,300 screens, and it was the first nationally released movie for New Line Cinema, interestingly. It grossed almost $9 million opening weekend at a time of a record for independent release, securing the number one spot at the box office. Other films in the top ten that weekend included Crocodile Dundee, that's a good movie, Platoon, that's a good movie, and Mannequin, what's that? You didn't see Mannequin? No. With Kim Cattrall? (gasps) I need to. Oh my god, she's a mannequin who comes to life. But is it a horror movie? No. I read a horror book probably around that time that was mannequins coming to life and killing people. Oh, no, no. This is like someone from the, the Brat Pack and Kim Cattrall. And Estelle Getty. Oh, I love Estelle Getty. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Shady Pines. Gaga! <laughs> 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 okay, you're watching Mannequin soon. Uh, the film will remain in the top ten for seven weeks and what ultimately grossed $44.8 million against a reported budget of $4.6 million. Right, and so that's like literally ten times. Yeah. Right? And so that's that's great. I'd say that's a hit, I'd say. And um, that's compared to like a Nightmare on Elm Street, which was done for two million and got like sixty million, mm-hmm. massive hit. And then Freddy's Revenge, which is the second one that they keep saying this is a return to form on, it was made for three million and made thirty million. So again, ten times Freddy's Revenge, uh, part two or whatever they call it, yeah. um, wasn't not a hit, right? It was it was a hit. It made a lot of money. That's a huge return for a movie. And I think this goes to show you, like all of it was well, just critically panned. It was critically planned, you know, and I, I like this one, I think is kind of middling with its reviews. Right. But I think it's it's got pretty good reviews. Right. We're about to get into that. It's fully evident, too, that like Freddy Krueger will make some money at this point and he will continue to make some money. Yeah. uh, Dream Warriors has a 68 percent of Rotten Tomatoes with an audience score also at 68 percent. The site's consensus reads A Night Rain Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors offers an imaginative and surprisingly satisfying rebound for a franchise already starting to succumb to sequelitis. Variety wrote that Russell's poor direction makes the film's intended and unintended humor difficult to differentiate. Hmm. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times rated it one and a half out of four stars. He liked the production values, but said that, quote, it never generated any sympathy for its characters, end quote. Janet Maslin of the New York Times wrote, quote, the film's dream sequences are ingenious, and they feature some remarkable nightmare images and special effects. Although he criticized Langenkamp's acting... Kim Newman wrote in Empire that, quote, the film delivers amazing scenes in spades, bringing to life the sort of bizarre images which used to be found only on comic book covers. I would agree with that. And I would look agree at with Janet Maslin. Yeah, I would agree with almost all of those reviews, including a little bit of Roger Ebert's. Yeah. I mean, this is me like trying to be objective about things, right? But uh, Janet Maslin almost never has nice things to say about yeah, her movies. Yeah, that's very strange. I wonder if they really cherry-picked that quote out of the review, <laughs> knowing Janet. <laughs> no, they're like, we got to find one. Because usually we find ourselves saying, damn it, Janet. That's right. Not this time, though. Um, it does have some accolades, um, but only nominations. At the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Horror Film, but it lost to Lost Boys. 
Uh, it was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Robert England, but it lost to Richard Dawson for The Running Man, and was nominated for Best Makeup, but lost to RoboCop. So we were just doing 1987 movies a lot. Yeah, well, 87 was a great year. Hell yeah, obviously. 86, 87, yeah. Mm-hmm. Amazing year for the theater. For the theater. For the theater. The legitimate theater. Yeah. I mean, you got Aliens, you got Predator, you got Dream Warriors, you got all kinds of shit. The Robocop. Hell yeah. Robocop. My goodness. Apparently, The Lost Boys, which I also love, and The Running Man, which I really, really like. I've never seen it. It's good. It's Stephen King and Schwarzenegger. It's like sci-fi horror at like its finest. It's not a great movie, but it's really fun. So then it's not at its finest. It's at its finest. Just like this movie's at its finest. Well, maybe that's what really got, you know... Uh, Darabont into it you know he saw Running Man he's like I can do better that's true and he did <laughs> and he did decades later that's right so let's talk about this cast a little bit um, obviously like one of the biggest things about this movie is it's cast huge ensemble right like a lot of directors and writers would have had a problem because you think of this movie at least people that casually think about it and aren't you know throbbing erection of nostalgia <laughs> boners for it yeah. you know um don't realize that the the ensemble is this large like literally i'm just counting them you've got Kristen, philip roland uh uh jennifer uh will another Taryn and then like Joey, right? So the seven kids and, uh, and apart from that, there is Heather Longenkamp coming back from the first one. So this is a huge principal cast. It really, right? really is. is. And then we add John Saxon as her father from the first movie and Robert England as Freddy Krueger. And then we got that nun out of left field as a, a weird subplot, mm-hmm. you know, and we've got the, the new uh, principal uh, doctors, you know, especially uh, Craig Lawson as Dr. Neil Gordon. We've got a, a really young kind of uh, puppyish Lawrence Fishburne, although he's credited as Larry Fishburne, who was, you know, you get it. For real, though. He looks really cute in this Huge movie. Huge cast. Huge. Yeah, it is really large. I mean, even the supporting characters like her mom, right, played by uh, Brooke Bundy, like they they get enough screen time to where I feel like they're kind of memorable. Right. And the thing is, is like, here's where the tricky line comes for me is I've seen this movie so many times. So I like all the characters are kind of memorable to, to me. Right. But I feel like even her mother got enough screen time and is a clear enough kind of character that she is present right? to me who like, um, watches a little more casually, like the first kid, don't really remember him much because we only he only had like two speaking lines before he got got killed. The puppeteer, the guy. one that never talks, you know, might as well just be a piece of cardboard. And then I, I confuse sometimes Kristen and Jennifer, which you're gonna hate when you. Well, of course, you're staring at me like I'm gonna die in my sleep tonight. Oh no 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 no! <laughs> but um, you know, it's it's like I feel like this could have been like taken down a little bit, or what my first impulse is is to just give it more time, right? But the filmmakers know what they're doing. The studio knows what they're doing. Like we're making kind of a schlocky, you know, horror sequel. Right. And maybe they realize, especially with Russ Craven coming back and some of these writers like Frank Darabont and like some of these talents coming back in, like you've got a lot of passionate people and a lot of huge amount of talent that's making this movie that actually made something that was greater than some of its parts, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I'm wondering if in hindsight, 2020 hindsight, 
that if they had really taken their time with this, it could have been something even more important and 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 better for the characters. I would completely agree with you. I feel like the I feel like the cast is very very large, right? And maybe for the first you know several times that I watched this, or even as a kid, it may not have mattered to me as much, right? Like when I was younger watching this movie, it was all about Freddy Krueger and the the deaths and things like that. Like when I was eight years old when this movie came out, that's the kind of horror that I was looking for something really schlocky. And it wasn't until much later on, like we talked about in our episode on like night of the living dead, where I found that horror movies could actually mean something. Right. And so like, I, I get all of that. And I think that you're right. I think if this movie were made today, they would make it sort of like longer format because there are so many characters and you can take some time. To I feel like Dream Warriors could be an excellent miniseries. You I, know? I would agree with you. Uh, I, I feel like, um, you know, I really kept thinking I need more time with them kind of tying who they are in the dream world and their talents in the dream world back to their trauma and the in real life. And like that has a lot of meaning and then having more time with them, like having a discovery moment there mm-hmm. to give us more contrast with like the wonder of the dreamscape contrasted to the horror of it with Freddie, but it ends literally like maybe 60 seconds after they have a good moment and it's kind of taken away from us as an audience. And so it's like a lot of the best moments in this movie is really just scratching the surface. Like they struck gold and then they like, okay, we struck it and walked away, you know, yep. like they didn't mine it. And so it's like, ah, oh man, it's just, it's too short for its own good in a way. And yeah, I, I, I would agree with that completely because like one of my biggest problems with this watching it last night was that I wanted to know a little bit more about why, why these are their powers in the dream world. Like what, what in their real life makes them want to do this? And they sort of explained that a little bit, you know, but not enough. And they could spend a lot more time with some of these. I mean, people like Jennifer who, who dies with the, with the TV, right? Yeah. Like we barely see her at all. All we know is that she wants to be an actress. And so she dies with a TV, right? So it's like parallel, but yeah. And then what's the significance of being able to pull people into dreams outside of like a plot device, you know, uh, on Kristen's character's part. I mean, she only ever said that she did it to her dad, right? So she was like, I used to pull my dad into my dreams. And he would be like, oh. And I did, like, having casually watched it, like, a couple of times, I don't didn't remember that. And I watched this last night. No, I yeah, no. Know. I was talking to somebody about that today. And they were like, because they literally asked the same question. They were like, well, why why was it such a big deal? And it just came out of nowhere. I was like, well, she kind of she kind It could of have been a monologue, it. you know? Yeah. And we know some, you know, showrunners for miniseries that would have made that into a monologue. Completely. Or had some sort of flashback moment where we see her pulling her dad into a dream. Yeah. Like, you're right. I feel like if people were to take the, the bones of this movie and sort of like stretch it out a little bit, it could be really, really good. And I because I feel like this is a horror movie that has a lot for for horror lovers in general right like there's a lot of like comic book s things in here there's a lot of sci-fi in here a lot of fantasy in here all rolled into a horror movie it's kind of like something for everybody and if you can add all those elements and make it just a little bit longer and spend more time with the characters it would be excellent right and we are getting a little ahead of ourselves because we do want to talk about like the development and things like that we didn't even mention jaja gabor in this cast reference yet oh but we will. <laughs> talking about acting, of all things. Dick Cavett, Zsa Zsa Gabor. Yes, we'll be talking about that. 
Tell me about some of the development. So some of this stuff, like I may know just because there's, I, we talked about this last September too. I'm sure you do. And I'm sure like, you'll probably already know all of the fun facts and things like that. I mean, maybe not. I mean, cause I haven't really looked into this movie a lot. Most of the things that I know came from this amazing, like four plus hour documentary about all the night Elm street movies. Okay. Which I've seen a couple times. Never sleep again. Yeah. 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 I do have a reference from that. Yeah. It's a, it's a really good documentary. Yeah. So following the critical failure of A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, the gay one, New Line Cinema was <laughs> unsure if they wanted to even continue with the series. And of course it would mm-hmm. because it made Gobbledy Gillian bucks. Even that one made like it was made for three million and it made 30 million. Of course they were going to. I mean, who cares? It was always just like striking gold with the character. The first one made like 20 times its budget and this one that one made 10 times and this one again made 10 times right but they wanted to make something that was critically you know acclaimed so they wanted to bring back Wes Craven who had originally not wanted to uh to make this into a franchise like he wanted Mm -hmm. to make a one-off that he was passionate about and like end it you know but due to the immense dissatisfaction with Freddy's Revenge which he had nothing to do with he signed on to co-write the screenplay for the third installment with the intention that it would end the series yeah right which is where all the, you know, you are the final children of Elm Street, you know, comes from. They use that a lot. In West, yes, Wes Craven trying to write it and end into it, even though before it even came out, when they did test audiences, they knew they were going to do another fucking sequel. And they ended up <laughs> doing many more. And so part of the marketing was that, hey, call the Freddy hotline and you could end up being in the sequel to this one, Dream Master. <laughs> so I'm sure Wes Craven was kicking himself at that point, too. Yeah, for making such a good movie. Yeah. Damn it, Wes. <laughs> So uh, a final script and screenplay was eventually formed after passes were done both individually and in tandem by Wes Craven, Bruce Wagner, Chuck Russell, the director, and Frank fucking Darabont in his first ever feature film writing credit. I don't know that I ever really noticed this, but when watching it this week, I was just like, what? What? Frank Darabont? Really? Yeah. I, I, I figured you had known that since you watched the shit out of this movie so much, but it, it I, this is the first time I noticed it too. And I've seen this, this is probably my third time seeing this movie. Yeah. And Frank Darabont, of course, would go on to do the Shawshank Redemption and a bunch of other Stephen King stuff, like The Mist that we're eventually going to gush over. Oh, yes, we will. Because that's one of the best, if not the best, Stephen King adaptions of all time. I would say it's He also did like The Green Mile and things like that. So he's mm-hmm. been up for Oscars and all kinds of stuff for his Stephen King adaptions and other things as well. Um, you know, I don't think he's made a movie in quite a while, which is sad. He's been doing TV. Okay. Yeah, he did Walking Dead and yeah. stuff like that, right? Yeah. So I don't. I don't know why I never noticed that. Like, it's gotten to the point in my life that when I watch this movie, like, and really, <clears throat> like, this is not my favorite horror movie. You know, like there there are better horror movies than It'd this be okay one. Okay, if it was Robert, I know this, but I mean, like, but it's it's like a comfort thing for me at this point. Like, if I have a bad day or like a bad week, and I just need to like sort of veg out and watch something, like I will, I would put this on. This and like Return of the Living Dead. To me, it used to be Buffy and Jack in the Box. <laughs> I mean, so I was watching this, and I was so I was watching this and eating Chinese food. You know what I mean? So I mean, it was a little cathartic, you know. Like, I need to find a new one of those because I've kind of soured against Buffy because of the whole Whedon stuff. Yeah, and then Jack in the Box is kind of gross to me now. <laughs> so I need to find a new vice and a new comfort food for movies yeah let's work on that mm. there are x-files <laughs> x-files and wendy's x-files and, wendy's. <laughs> X-Files and scullies you just like god damn it god damn it <laughs> now we'll get to that we'll get to that listeners very soon it's a preview for you 
<laughs> you shall hear our top 13 <laughs> X-Files episodes. It's coming. Anyway. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we love Frank Darabont. And we have we even covered one by him yet? No. No. Did yeah. he do Dreamcatcher as well? Mm, maybe. That's yes. like a guilty pleasure of mine. I, feel I also like, like Dreamcatcher. I feel like Dreamcatcher, there's moments of that movie that are like top of the line fucking horror i because i expected to hate that movie somehow that movie is constructed in such a way that makes it kind of a piece of shit but there's like individual set pieces and and moments in that fucking movie that are just stellar 100 percent. i did not expect to love that movie and i did it was random i haven't seen it like 20 years but anyway every time i've seen it i've I've, but oh that was actually pretty good let's do that with the mist falls apart anyway Back to whatever the movie that we're trying to cover right now. Um, <laughs> Dream Warriors. Thank you. Uh, in interviews with the cast and the crew, it was revealed that the original idea for the film centered around the kids separately traveling to a specific location to die by suicide. God. Later, it would be discovered that the common link between the youths was that they dreamed of Freddy Krueger. Since suicide was a taboo social issue, uh, obviously, I guess always a taboo social issue for kids but now they're covering it like crazy mm-hmm. what was that one that came out um 13 reasons why. 13 reasons why or whatever and there was like a rash of suicides well that and the like, preteen community for watching that on netflix just a couple years later they would have a whole movie called heathers that's right yeah mm-hmm. but anyway um they abandoned that specific storyline although they you know obviously some aspects of the idea obviously remained in the film because there's like suicide previous suicide attempts and uh, suicides referred to all over this film. You know, yeah. The Razor at the beginning, you uh-huh. know, with uh, Jennifer Kaylee or whatever her name is. Kristen. Kristen. <laughs> this isn't. Okay. This movie was made in 1987. Not, Why could like, they all just be Heathers? And 2020. I could just get it right. I know. We'll just call them Heather. <laughs> Heather 1 and Heather 2. <laughs> but no, I mean, there is like, there's mention of suicide by almost all the characters. Yeah, and the guy's in a wheelchair because he apparently tried to jump at some point. Yeah. And um, so again, they just I, don't show it until like the end or like, no, they show it, but they always make it Freddie doing it, which is, of course, the whole cause of the movie. But. Yeah. But whenever they see these kids dead, they just assume that it was suicide. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because like, obviously, suicide by TV is the most popular way to kill yourself. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> TV suicide. Don't, don't do, do it. it. We're just going to sing random She just climbed songs. up to that TV and ran her face. <laughs> like, what a tragic suicide. What? <laughs> she I really mean. wanted to be on primetime. <laughs> so I mean, all of these kids have tried to kill themselves at some point, or at least their parents think they did. And I think right. that's, that's what it gets at, is that no one's listening to them, you know? And that's a huge part of this movie. Yeah. So on Never Sleep Again, the Elm Street Legacy... Uh, documentary that you were talking about director chuck russell states that craven's original script was darker and more profane Ooh. while rachel T- uh, talele thought that it seemed like a 20 million dollar script so it was really good and everyone really liked it but of course it was probably too early for its time discussing the more humorous elements in the film russell stated i looked at what wes craven did and said this is absolutely great and terrifying but i felt that the time I came along on the way was to go to make the whole idea of dreams and nightmares into a carnival and go further into into the dreams and make Freddy Krueger more outrageous and add more of an element of dark humor. That worked, and the series went in that direction from then on. It really did. Now, I have to say he can't take full credit for that. No. Right? Because, of course, he was one of four Raiders, but also because there was a little bit of that seeded in even in the first movie. 
There's a little bit. Freddy's I mean, always had kind of a nod and a wink, you know, and a glint in his eye, you know. He's been a little creepy. Evil Santa Claus or whatever the fuck. I mean, he's got good one-liners and, and shit yeah. like that. Like, even in the second one, you know, what do you say? Like, fucking, like, you're the body or whatever the fuck. I mean, like, he says yeah. things that are goofy. But, like, he really drives home some of the quip in this. And oh, <clears throat> starting yeah. in the next movie and moving forward up until, like, Freddy's dead. By the time Freddy's dead rolls around, like the entire thing is just basically a fucking comedy at that point. They just try to make everything as like <clears throat> almost Burton-y, you know, when it gets to the dream like parts of things. And and Freddy Krueger just becomes this like really, really comedic villain. And at least in this one, he retains like some sort of horror. But like after this, they just really run with that. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at the first two movies – you don't get to see a whole lot of Freddy Krueger's face. He's still kind of like darkly lit and in the shadows and things like that. But by the time Dream Warriors came around, they were showing a lot of Freddy Krueger and they weren't afraid to do that. And more of him in different ways than we had seen previously, too, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because he would get to like change his figure and change his shape and he could be anything that he really wanted they to really, be. They really, really double down on like the protean nature of the dream world and yeah. Freddy's nature in this movie in a way that had just had not been done yet. Which is a good thing. I mean, like when you think about dreams in general, like you can do whatever you want to in dreams and not just like the the bad things that happen to you, but you yourself. If you're trying to have some sort of like lucid dream and you want to fight back, of course, you're going to find some sort of like something within your nature to like be yeah, pronounced. The only thing is like that once in a while, because they have to show you what Freddie's doing sometimes in isolation, mm-hmm. you know, like becoming a little maquette off on the wall or whatever, a little bobbleheaded like whatever the puppet. fuck puppet marionette yeah. marionette yeah um you know he's he's really like finding a lot of joy and glee and just being who he is and it makes it endearing which i think is almost a mistake to yeah. do because you, you you really should not like the villain you know i mean like if, if you want if you really want people's deaths to mean something you have to really root against the villain that doesn't always happen right and it's okay to like villains but like they really go out of their way sometimes to make him seem very very cool and to let him like revel in murdering people right yeah and you're kind of like waiting for him to kill the next person especially after this like there's some really ingenious deaths and i'm sure that when we get to the special effects talk about this stuff you know we'll get to like the way that some of these people died but like moving forward i mean we'll see people getting like squished to death after they've become cockroaches you know what i mean like yeah like people are just dying in the most like outrageous ways so and this opened the door for that right and and this is a great segue for us to start talking about the special and visual effects that made that all possible yeah and right it's like this is like not really my list of like how they did it but like the things that really like spoke to me which is like the very first thing like i thought okay i'm in for a ride because the very first scene is her carrying that little girl and that little girl <laughs> looks like she's made a fucking a two by four it's, like, it's horrible it's looking. like she's carrying a toddler sized uh, doll it's like your camera needs to be about a mile further away <laughs> for real it looks for so me fake to, to sell that you're not carrying like a live little girl yeah so the special effects were created by the team led by peter chesney and included kevin yeager and mark shostrom which will come up later oh. right and so I haven't really heard of this team before. So maybe the, these as individuals have worked on other teams like for Stan Winston or for other big names, but I hadn't really heard of these guys before. Um, but like I said, it, the movies kicked off with that shitty little girl corpse at the beginning. And I was like, okay, great. This is going to be 
horrible. You know, I remember that some of this is cheesy, but I little did I know that they really knocked it out of the park for some of these things. And even now in 2023, I like clutched my pearls a little bit with some of these effects coming up. Some of them are really good, but that that little fucking girl, when she's running with it, right? And it's not moving, just the hair is sort of flapping and it's all sort of like rigid. I was just like, that looks really bad. Patricia? Patricia. (laughs) (laughs) There is no acting in this world that can sell that piece of shit that you're carrying around. And then later on, she, she wins an Oscar guys. I mean, like she won an Oscar for boyhood. I should also mention, like, I love this movie so much when I was younger that like some of these people like Patricia Arquette, like Jennifer Rubin, Larry Fishburne, like the other great, but I fell in love with Patricia Arquette from this movie and it's just followed her career. (laughs) But yeah. So the, her first ever like screen appearance, she's like running with a doll, like clearly a doll. (laughs) And then she looks, at it and it's like where whatever the fuck it's <laughs> you're hurting me <laughs> let me go you're hurting me and it's like a skull or whatever. a burnt skull i love it God. that was really muppety it is it's super muppety there's a, a lot, lot of muppety this, things yeah. in this yeah. there is but not like so overtly you know like it's still kind of could be considered horror <laughs> you know um the giant fray snake and i'm like okay i'm seeing some things that are starting to appear in other movies that come out after this like beetlejuice right yeah well that and like it's really cool to watch the documentary it's all fucking stop motion too you know for this because the, the way they motion. rigged that room to like all of it's practical right so they have the room set up to where like the, the ceiling is blowing and the walls are blowing and creating those like rips the snake comes out and then the way they filmed that like it's eating patricia arquette but they filmed it in reverse or whatever so it looks like it's swallowing yeah. her she's climbing out and of they it. were doing this like until like three or four in the morning because they were they, they had said we need a 20 million dollar budget and they're like mm-hmm. only given four million and so they had to figure it out and so yeah. they were there with like on the technical sets and like she would have to come out at like a 4 a.m. Like for a, a 4 p.m. call time, she mm-hmm. would become finally come out there at 4 a.m. And by that time, she had forgot her lines. And so there's an anecdote where she, of course, fell asleep inside the mouth of that snake. <laughs> she was so tired. She literally fell asleep inside the snake's mouth. <laughs> One of my favorite things from that documentary, too, is that they the, the way that the snake is filmed, the way it looks on film is different because they had to change it because it was colored so much. Yes. It looks like a dick. Yes. They had to put like green slime on it. Yeah. Yeah. I was just like. I love it. It's a giant Freddy dick eating her. But it's memorable. It is. I think it's cool looking. And we get that puppet marionette, which I thought was one of those those freakiest. Yeah, I thought it was really fucking neat. They also did that in reverse as well, because they had a full Freddy maquette. Mm -hmm. And then they would add clay to make it look like he had been whittled, you know, because when they did it in reverse, it looked like it was whittled down into a Freddy shape. That's so cool. Because it was just like a modeling doll or something like that, or a little, I don't know what the fuck it was. But it was freaky. It looked freaky kind of in the middle stage. Mm-hmm. And then it became into like a little miniature little Muppety Freddy. And then, and then he grew or whatever. And it was like, like ruined. Cutting its like ruined. strings and whatnot. I wanted him to go into the covers or whatever. <laughs> <and> like, <laughs> 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 but it's neat. I really like the fucking marionette quite a bit. But going along with that is like when, when the fucking veins come out of his arms when he like cuts his wrists and he pulls his veins out to walk with him. Yeah. This is after the, the nightmare pig <laughs> moment, which we'll talk about later too. But yeah, the, I think the the sequence of this movie is of, of a huge amount of sequences that are like, would be the centerpiece of any other, you know, stop motion movie, effect movie or gore movie. Right. would be like Hellraiser is a good example of that. Right. Mm-hmm. We have a bunch of like makeup effects, but there's really one centerpiece of the movie. And that is the guy coming back 
from yeah. nothing, you know, and building up his flesh again. And you know, so gross. Uh, and Hellraiser, right? But in this, it would be the puppeteer walk where it's, he's splitting open his veins, tying his veins together and braiding them together to furl up puppet strings. Mm-hmm. And you get to see him getting puppeted in real world by invisible strings versus in the dream world. You get to see all those veins coming out of his arms and stuff. And that was really fucking gross. And I haven't really seen anything, anything like it in anything else. No, it's really fucking wince inducing. Like, yeah. Every time I you watch this movie, I know you can. You know what I mean? Because it's like tendons and shit too, you can imagine. You know? Yes. It's just like, like Freddy has killed people a lot, you know, and this is only the third movie and we'll be covering all these movies either here or on Patreon. But like, this is the moment in all of the movies, all the sequels that I'm like, I just can't, you know, cause it like, they're, they're coming out. The guy looks like he's in fucking pain. He's like acting the shit out of that, <coughs> that effect. Yeah. And you can feel it. You can feel the pain in your own arms when you're watching that and your feet too. So and then it's really the idea of it more than the actual effect. Cause it's really just like a bunch of red string and acting that's yeah. doing it. But and it's in blue yeah. screen because it's really the next one. That was probably the most technical, which was of course, Jennifer's death scene. And that is welcome to prime time. Welcome bitches. to prime time, bitch. Yeah. Oh my God. And that's the, they had like four different versions of the TV and like different robot arms. And then a version where Freddy's real head could come out of the top and do a bunch of like stop motion stuff. And then like animatronic t- styled stuff. Like they had a bunch of different things to actually make this work. And it still does work. The fakest thing is of course the body double, which they're not good at. No. Um, that they have to do for Jennifer, you know, sticking out of the TV, sticking out of the TV. Cause it's just like, it looks like a stick person, you yeah, know, just in, a, in a robe, there, whatever. You know? <laughs> With a wig on. <laughs> and a fucking long ass flannel. I'm like, you do all this work and you can't get a fucking like <laughs> dead body right. You come on. Well, I really like that scene a lot too. I mean, it's just cool when his head sort of like pops out of the TV and like all the metal seems to be stretching around his face and he's got this fucking Muppety antenna on top of his head. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's cool and fun. And they hadn't really played with that really. And maybe I'm wrong since maybe like the first one where his tongue was coming out of the phone. That's right. It was something in the real world. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, uh, I feel like in Freddy's revenge, like a lot of it had to do with like, there's a lot of telekinesis or, stuff yeah. going on with like the showers and the balls and the hoses and shit. Well, and everything had to do with like him invading someone's actual body, you know, for yeah. the most part in that one. So you didn't get to play around with which so was many, kind of like, a scapegoat. Like they they could they didn't have to do things in the dream world as much. It was really Freddy coming in into our world, yeah, yeah. through possession or whatever, which is kind of lame compared to this for sure. Yeah, and this one is more like like the first one so it's like you're dreaming but the things that you are around things you're actually touching can also be a part of your dream and so he could be a part of it and in the first one too he used telekinesis you know from the dream world just as much as often you know like the trying to hang the guy in the jail cell versus now we really get to see kind of the artistry you know and the creativity <laughs> and the imagination that freddie can use as having you know this is like an astral plane where he can whatever he thinks is you know and it has confidence and he can do Mm-hmm. You know, because you can almost see it as almost like a battle of wills when they start to use their powers in the dreamscape. Like the wizard manages to hurt Freddy for That's a right. moment. For a minute. You know, he he did, he definitely kills Freddy's prop of the wheelchair. He destroys that utterly. But mm-hmm. when he tries to attack Freddy and gets too confident, Freddy's like, no, all I have to do is deny what you think you're doing 
because I don't believe in fucking magic or whatever. And he kills him just right there. Right. I mean, that's, Which the sucks. Way that, that's the way that Nancy killed Freddy in the first one. I was like, like, I turned my back on you. Yeah. Whatever the fuck. Yeah. I turned my back on you. <laughs> He's learned his oh. fucking lesson. Yeah. You know, don't turn your back on Freddy, especially in the gay one. But like, I, f- <laughs> I found my voice and my agency. <laughs> this movie he seems to be like he's attacking them with who they are, right? Yeah. In a way that he hasn't really done before. Speaking of which, all those little screaming chesticles. Yeah. All, all the people like popping out of him. All, right. Yeah. All those little faces coming out of it. It's just that actually freaked me out a little bit. Yeah. They looked kind of real and they're animated mm-hmm. in such a way that I think it was like an anim- animatronic chest plate because it didn't look as stop motion. I don't know. Maybe my memory's fucking with me, but. It looked really fucking bizarre and like hellish and nasty and gross. And it, it adds to mythology too, because up until that point, like Freddy seems to be killing people for revenge. Yeah. You know what I mean? And he's still sort of doing that. In but this, you think that point. he'd be going, of course he's, he's doing like the, he's going for the pain and not the kill by going after the children. Right. But that's what his MO was, was in the, in the reality, right? Which was that he mm-hmm. was a child murderer. But from really here out. Child molester. From here out, it's it's always like he's collecting souls. He's like, once I kill you, your soul belongs to me. And here they are popping out. They're of adding body. to the mythology. And yeah. like, if you think about it, like what they were trying to allude to was that maybe he was actually innocent and yet he was like the wrong guy, you know, so yeah. he's going after innocence in revenge, you know, which I'm glad they never did. No, because it's important for us to think that he was a murderer beforehand, I think. And he is. I mean, like, I, I don't think that they, they ever really changed that. They, they may talk about it less and less. Yeah. As the franchise goes on. In fact, now he is the the you know culmination of a hundred men's evil men's seed. Yeah. Which we didn't need. He's the bastard seed of a hundred maniacs. That whole subplot can just get edited the fucking out. It is so fucking dramatic. All the nuns. She was raped endlessly. I know. She was raped hundreds of times. My God. By hundreds of men. All culminating. I was like, that's not how biology works. <laughs> She's like, all culminating. They and all went together to create what? One megasperm. Uh, I don't know, the size of a best like child of a trout maniacs. or something. <laughs> the lucky sperm wins. <clears throat> anyway, <laughs> that sperm, the sperm with the uh, gloved claw <laughs> hand, just fighting its way through, just ripping apart that womb. Anyway, finally we get the Freddy skeleton in the junkyard. With the junkyard itself is a character, right? Because yeah. it kind of comes alive and it, it buries their car and it locks them in, you know, and it's it's just a bunch of you know, robotics, you know, and, and or just puppet puppeted car parts. But a really cool fucking set piece. Though. But a really good actual stop motion uh animation that reminded me of Army of Darkness that would come on later with the skeleton, you know. Of course, all of that comes from like um Jason and the Argonauts. Jason and the Argonauts. I was going to say yeah. the Clash of the Titans or something. You know, so it's nothing, nothing new as far as like skeletons coming alive. It might be an homage in, of, in and of itself, but it had to be Freddy's body anyway, right? Mm-hmm. And so I loved that piece and it looked actually surprisingly good. Well, and it's real fucking sassy too. It I is. mean, like it, it's a Freddy skeleton, so I it has to be a little it to sassy. I Muppety and sassy, but it wasn't really. It really goes for the fucking kill and it, it, it does it fast. He was panicked, and you could tell because I was expecting to have a little bit more of a comedy scene a la Army of Darkness, but that skeleton is like out for blood. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't have time for this. I'm gonna I'm trying to kill your kids right now. So you guys need to stop whatever the fuck you're trying to do, and I'm gonna fucking kill you. And he basically does. And I mean they they go so far as to make the the faces of that skeleton look super annoyed, even. It's just like, okay, like, let's do this. Yeah. Um, so one of my favorite 
visual effects from this and something that I think is one of the most Muppety effects is when Taryn is dying and she has those little like sucking mouths on her, her, her suction track. Marks. Oh God. Like, oh, you know yes. what I mean? <laughs> like, well, they were. And, and of course that's a famous scene. So, um, you know, I think there's at least two kills in this that are in like the top 10 most, you know, Freddie kills lists that, you know, that exist out there on the interwebs and on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And so one of them, of course, is the prime time death of the TV. But the other one is the his hands turning into syringes and pumping her through full of that's drugs right. and somehow that killing her. And then, of course, originally and they shot this, her head explodes, mm-hmm. but it looked too Muppety and weird. So they kept it out. Which is good. I mean, I like I I like this death. I think it's really sad, actually. Yeah, and it felt like it hit, should have hit a little harder. But I'm I'm just sitting there thinking about the effects of the needles and and Freddie just you know being like Mark Hamill Joker or something, mm-hmm. versus like really trying to making time for the character that I felt for because I thought she was really cool and then just like fucking waste her yep. immediately like they do so many of these kids. And you're right. Like going back to what you had said earlier, I feel like in a long format, I feel like this would be better to explore because like these kids, all their powers have something to do with something they feel deficient in in real life. Or at the very least, just another beat. You know, the movie could be like maybe 15 minutes longer if they mm-hmm. just gave us an extra beat with each of these characters to drive it home or an extra tiny little monologue piece explaining their background or mm-hmm. just something a little bit more meat with these characters or a little bit more time with them for their deaths and things like that. So where we could really like kind of feel it a little bit more. And they, they do kind of like talk about like Tyrion's past drug addiction, yeah. right? Because when the orderly is like talking to her and she's like, reference. no, I don't do that anymore. You know, it, but they, they don't really spend enough time on it to make that death like hard hitting. Like it could have been. Yeah. Like all these deaths could have been. But <clears throat> I mean, the special effects are, are really, really good. They step it way, way up. Kind from, of like, inconsistent, the second but one. super, super unique and imaginative. And, and I'm okay with some Muppetry in yeah, this. Hit or miss. Yeah. It comes with the territory, which this kind of paved the way for in the franchise. Oh, and forward. it will get super, super more Muppety oh, like, yeah. coming up. Well, speaking of Muppety, <laughs> well, not really. <laughs> I did want to mention the music, right? Um, because it's part of the look and feel, and the special effects are certainly part of that. But Angelo um, Battlementi uh, of Twin Peaks fame, uh-huh. a frequent collaborator with David Lynch, even up to like Mulholland Drive and stuff. Um, you know, based on the original themes that were done by Charles Bernstein, um, from the, you know, the original synthesizer theme, the theme is not used as much here and kind of favors a little bit more Twin Peaksy weirdness. And the music definitely brings some of that David Lynch to this movie with some of the to- kind of tongue in cheek, you know, aspects to this movie. There's a little bit of funkiness in this, in this score. When I was kind of hoping for a little bit more of the intrigue of the original theme, which is used, but a little bit, but sparingly, you know, it just it fits. You know, I just thought that was interesting. And I really like this uh, composer and it's very uh, synthesizer. I feel like that they they favor the original theme most when they are cutting back to things from the original movie, like the house. Right. Yeah. Like anytime that original house is there, it's like, dun, 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 whatever, you know. But, like, other than that, like, not really. Or anytime we're talking about, like, the past. I feel like they use that sometimes with the nun, you know? But, like, it's sparingly yeah, used. a little bit. And then we got our soundtrack song by Dawkins. Oh, my God. This song is so stupid, but I love it. 
Yeah, and then they used another one, the original theatrical. They also had like the Hellfire one or the mm-hmm. Line of Fire across the fire. I don't fucking know what it was. I need to go back and look at our top 10 list of top 10 pop songs used in horror movies. I don't think that either one of us included Dawkins on no. that. We did include that song from Freddy's Revenge, though. It independently like tracked on the. I don't know that it was like platinum or anything, but it it was it played in the top 100, I'm sure, for a little while. Well, and then like whenever you rented the video, way back when it was released, the music video played before the movie. You had to like fast forward through the video to watch the oh, yeah? movie. Yeah. So I'd seen that video many times. Yeah, I. I watched the video and it's it's funny because it's a little bit different. The whole thing has you know the characters in it, and she's yep. like even doing the paper mache. Yep. In fact, that kind of pissed me off when I was like, "This is not how you do paper mache." She did not add enough water to that paper mache mix. <laughs> <laughs> it's like she's like, I don't know, putting this stupid house together with ropes of streaming jism. You know, just <laughs> it like, really looked thick too. <laughs> this is not how you do it. One star. Anyway, so it shows her doing that again in the music video, but this time she's putting up like cutouts of the magazine of the band or whatever mm. you know to make the house instead of just newspaper god i remember that video i've seen it way too many times and at the end i think freddie comes back or whatever and mm-hmm. i forget what he does at the end of the music video but it's something it sure is something we're the dream warriors i i assume you're gonna cut some parts of the song into this it's no i'm just gonna make i'm gonna put crickets behind you <laughs> don't want to dream no more <laughs> And maybe tonight, maybe tonight you'll be gone. (laughs) Poetry. (coughs) Yeah, I'll throw a comedy cop in there. (laughs) Um, So overall, I mean, we've talked about a lot, you know, um, I don't know if you have uh, stuff that you want to talk about specifically. I just wanted to say, like, I feel like the, while this is not maybe like the best movie, it's pretty damn original and imaginative, culminating into an impressively ambitious movie for a, certainly for a second sequel. And most of the time it pulls it off incredibly well. Yeah. So I I really, really enjoy this franchise as a whole. Like, I really like Freddy Krueger. I like all the Night Rain Elm Street movies. I like them all individually, even the ones that I think are really bad. I think are a good time, right? But this one sort of like stands out. I think this one's special, right? Because I just I just got off like a string of kind of derivative movies for for better or worse. There's yeah. nothing wrong with that. Everything comes from something, right? But th- this is so much creativity, so much deliberate and intentional art and design in this movie. Um, so imaginative, and they just did whatever the fuck they could to their heart's content to pull it off. And it's super ambitious and. Um, you know, they they may not have succeeded every time. That fucking doll at the beginning. <laughs> and a couple of other Muppety things that are limitations of the technology and, and other things. You know, but I'd say, honestly, like, it's it's still, like, something that's more worth the sum of its parts. And then also just I love I love things that are ambitious like this. Well, and it didn't have to be. They didn't have to be. That comes straight from the passion of the filmmakers and the writers they and didn't. the the artists. I mean, all they had to do was throw Freddy in there again, killing a bunch of kids, and it would have made some money, just like the two that well, came they, before the it. Well, the studio is, you know, it started with the studio <clears throat> saying, okay, we love this franchise, but it makes us a lot of money, but we also actually, we're new line, we're a new kind of studio, and mm-hmm. we really would rather make good movies. And so we're going to go intentionally go back to Wes Craven, you know, whoever he wants to pull this thing together, you know? 
And that's the thing is that like, I feel like up to this point, if we're talking about the franchise two dream warriors, right? So like the, the first one, the original is clearly that's, that's Craven. That's a Craven film. You can watch it and tell that. And it does create a really good, memorable villain. The second one is good for other reasons, right? I think it's kind of subversive and just like, just different. And I think that people give it kind of a bad rap, but I think that there's a lot to say in that movie. This one, I think stands out because I feel like if they had just made this movie a standalone, they didn't need to do a whole lot of like backstory for this particular villain. This could have been the very first Nightmare on Elm Street movie and have been just fine. <clears throat> but I think that it does things differently that they, they don't they don't do any other time in this franchise, right? I think we have a lot of characters in this movie that are like that like each other, that want to work together. It creates a really good environment. And I also feel like when we're looking at things that stand the test of time and things that have inspired, I feel like Dream Warriors has inspired a generation of filmmakers and screenwriters and just people who create media and media in general in ways that the other two that came before this didn't. Right. I think you can look at things like Stranger Things and whatnot. And a lot of it is owed to this particular movie. I feel like this movie is just like, it's so special in a way that it touches people inappropriately or whatnot. You know what I mean? That they just like, they, they remember it and they this hold on to inappropriately. it. I mean, for real, show me on the marionette where dream warriors touched you. But I, I feel like people will always hold on to this movie and go back and watch it in ways like I do. I can't be the only person in the world who like gets comfort in watching dream warriors. Right you know on the Merkin. Um, <laughs> But I may not know a lot of fun facts, so do you have some for me? I do. Okay. But you're probably going to know all of it. Let's find out. Okay. There were three other scripts. Three. Total. Three. No, I did not know this. All right. Yeah. So Craven's first concept for the film was to have Freddy Krueger invade the real world. Krueger would haunt the actors filming a new Nightmare on Elm Street sequel. Sound familiar? New Line Cinema rejected the meta-cinematic idea, but years later, Craven's concept was brought to the screen in Wes Craven's new Nightmare. Which would be a fucking masterpiece. Except that it probably made the least amount of all of the movies. But I saw in the theater, so I gave it some money. Mm -hmm. And uh, another one. Before it was decided what script would be used for the film's story, both John Saxon... And Robert England wrote their own scripts. So technically there's four scripts. What? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so they, they in Saxon's script called for, uh, it was called How the Nightmare on Elm Street All Began. That's a terrible title. Yes. Which would have been a prequel story and Freddy would ultimately turn out to have been innocent or at least set up for the murders by Charles Manson, <laughs> who along with his followers would have been the main culprit of the murders. Freddy would be forced by the mob of angry parents to make a confession of his crimes, which would enrage them further after they lynch Freddy. He comes back to avenge his wrongful death by targeting the parents of children. That. It's the stupidest thing. I've I don't know if it's stupid. I feel it's irresponsible. <laughs> it's a lot of fucking well, things. Because like, the Manson family like killed real people. You know what I mean? They did. Like, stop it. But um, and also when this movie was made, like okay, that's dumb. I don't even want to talk about that. Anymore. Okay. In England's Robert England's treatment called Freddy's Funhouse. <laughs> okay. The protagonist would have been Tina Gray's older sister, oh. who would have been in college at the time Tina was murdered, and ends up coming back to Springwood to investigate how she died. In the script, Freddy had claimed the 1428 Elm Street house for his own in the Dream World, setting up booby traps like Nancy did against him. According to England, part of the 
part of it later ended up being used in the pilot episode of Freddy's Nightmares after the script had been lying around unused for a few years. I have not watched that series in a very, very long time. So not only are there like directors and writers that are like chomping at the bit to do like a proper sequel, we've got two different actors coming with two fully fleshed out scripts. One of which sounds plausible and the other one sounds horrible. Well, I still feel like a prequel uh, Freddy film has yet to be made and could be. Well, they kind of do that. It doesn't have to be done that way. They do it in the remake a little bit. There's a lot more of the past, but but it's not good. Yeah. yeah. Well, none of it's good. We don't talk about that one. (laughs) We're gonna. (laughs) Are we? Yeah. (laughs) All right. So did you not know that? I did not know this. Thank God. That's amazing. Sweet. In the shooting script, Sally Kellerman was supposed to appear on Dick Cavett's talk show on on TV in the movie, but Cavett allegedly handpicked Joshua Gabor (laughs) personally after being given the opportunity to choose who he thought should appear on his show and be slaughtered by Freddie. According to Robert England, all of her reactions and dialogue were completely improvised. Quote, Ms. Gabor, who was probably just grateful to be asked to appear in a movie again, (laughs) apparently didn't read the script or bother to do any research on the nightmare flicks. I guess her agent told her, I have a job for you. And all she said was, great, that time should I show up, darling? (laughs) Not realizing that she was about to throw down with a burnt-to-a-crisp serial killer during the fake talk show where she's interviewed by Dick Cavett, all her reactions seen on the film were 100% genuine. She didn't know who the fuck Freddy was, so when I jumped out, she had a mild freak out. Because <laughs> yes. you see it. She goes, ah! <laughs> I thought she was just actually acting. No, because in that in that interview, they're talking about like how actors should learn. And she's like, oh, you should definitely take classes and blah, blah, blah. And I'm and I'm always like, what the fuck is Josh Gabor talking about acting for? Like, really? <laughs> yeah. And then I was just like, oh, she's acting. And he pops out. That's fucking amazing. She just wanted to check. <laughs> <laughs> Darling. <laughs> yes all right i'm loving these love it okay so mark Schostrom, a makeup artist uh who or a makeup effects artist who was also doing work on the set of evil dead 2 oh. possibly it is said smuggled the freddy glove used in dream warriors and used it as the background prop for uh one day explaining why the glove appeared in the film released the same year because it's on in his shed on the That's wall. right. It sparked a huge fucking thing because it's kind of like the Predator skull or the alien skull in Predator 2. Exactly. No, I mean, because when I first saw Evil Dead 2, because I saw it after this, I was just like, what? Like, and even now I people totally talk about see Freddy in the Evil Dead universe. Well, they, they talk about that. They talk about like an yeah. Ash versus Jason versus Freddy kind of movie Chris. or whatever the fuck. Fuck Jason. You know? Well, at least Ash versus Freddy would be fun. Yes. I would watch that. Similar vibes. Yes. Yeah. My God. I love seeing that hand, that glove, and that. Kinda, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to my fruit cellar, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, Kristen comes from. Kristen comes across a classic nightmarish image of a roasted pig on a table during the movie. And then it comes to life and growls at her, (laughs) which I actually loved. (laughs) We do. Uh, They actually roasted a pig, let it spoil. And the prop guys puppeted it from beneath. The poor guy who was actually behind the camera, cinematographer Roy Wagner, claims the pig stench was so overwhelming he can still smell it to this day. Oh, my God. It's Day of the Dead. Why couldn't you just like literally couldn't you just like made... A little puppet of that. I mean, like they created a whole Freddy Dick worm. 
<laughs> you know, they couldn't make a fake puppety pig. I don't know. It's easy to go to the grocery store. What grocery store can you get a little piglet from? I don't know. Well, you can order them because we roasted a pig okay. at, at work once. I guess it was easier. I don't know. No, they had to roast Talk the to pig, people though. on the Day of the Dead set, I guess. You know, they're the ones that yeah. are like, like stewing and all the fucking rotting intestines of cows and shit. That's gross. I mean, like, yeah, go for realism if you can. Real, but, but literally you're seeing a, a corpse of a dead pig being muppeted i did not know that that's, real. that's really fucking nasty <laughs> so next time you watch it yeah know that it's real <clears throat> and i will i think i'll be watching again soon actually all right so finally something you probably already knew the line welcome to primetime bitch spoken by freddie in the scene was not included in the script it was ad-libbed by robert england yeah i did know that one oh. but and i like it though because i feel like I feel like without that ad lib, it's really the main takeaway. It is. I mean, like <laughs> for for his character, it's his it's his character's progression at that exact moment. Yep. The moment he pushes that woman's head into a TV and says that fucking line, <laughs> forever changes the trajectory of Freddy Krueger. Like it makes him a completely different villain for the rest of the movies in this franchise. It does. So it's classic. Not gonna lie, for sure. Those were fun. And I didn't know almost all of them. Most of them, except for that last one. So, thank you. But we have some questions to ask about A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors. And we're not going to start with this as a horror movie because it's clearly a fucking <laughs> yes. horror movie, right? But were you scared watching this? Um, No. Although there was moments where I was like clutching my pearls a little bit. I feel like when I was a kid, like I was scared. Obviously, I was like seven or eight. The veins thing, the image of it, the idea of the Always. veins thing, the puppet, you know, there was a little bit like a moment of the maquette, that the little piglet. I don't remember if I was laughing or crying, <laughs> maybe both throwing up a little bit while I was laughing. I don't know. I mean, the veins thing for sure. I continue to wince. I winced when I was watching this last night. I was just like, oh, God, it just feels so real it's to me. And I can feel the pain. Mixture of like popcorn horror with like fascination and nausea mm-hmm. and also excitement. It's so I don't know how to, you know, I, don't. I, I know when I was a, when I was a kid, I was scared a lot. And the more I watched it and I've seen it so many times that it just, it doesn't affect me as much except for that vein thing. But I can see where like younger people would be scared of this movie. This is almost gateway horror. Um, yeah. You know, I mean like the, it's a little beyond gateway. Yeah, I would say. yeah, I mean, it, it stretches into like our territory, you know, clearly, but like the imagery is way beyond gateway. I don't know. I mean, maybe the veins thing alone that there's some, there's some visuals in this movie that made me clutch my pearls a little bit. I feel like this movie is like geared toward young adults, like adolescents and teenagers for sure. Like most horror movies were at the time, but like, and then as these things would go further, like clearly they were, they were trying to get kids to watch these movies because kids liked Freddy Krueger. Oh yeah. You know, it was fun, accessible. Exactly. And I think this movie like really, really started that. In a way that Pennywise only wishes he was. Oh, yeah, only adults are scared of clowns. No, that's not true. I was scared of clowns when I was a kid, too. Me, too. Yeah. Out of five stars, what would you rate Dream Warriors? I give it a three and a half. Okay. I'll tell you why. Uh, like I said, I feel it's greater than some of the parts. I feel like it's uh, almost more important than it is good. We've said that a couple of times. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like, um, like I said, I love how imaginative, 
you know, imaginative and ambitious this movie is and how often it succeeds. Every time I watch it, I feel like I'm rooting for it Mm -hmm. because it's doing so well and it's like hitting it out of the park and then I'll have a misstep, you know, and a lot of its missteps are more on like not on the technical side or its ambitious side, but on the parts that it probably thought it had in the bag, like Heather Longenkamp. It probably thought it had, you know, a big asset there and actually not really. Um, She had really shitty acting in this movie and it was distracting for me. That's subjective, I guess. But she was very wooden. And other people have noticed that, too, in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people find it endearing. And I do kind of a little bit, too. But it's also, like, less than fully fleshed out, like, dream warrior moments, like we've mentioned, could have added so much story and an intrigue potential to this movie. And I felt like if it would just taken a little bit more time with those characters, like them learning or using their abilities, like if you think of any superhero movie, like, some of the most fun parts are them discovering things about themselves and what they can do. I mean, this is New Mutants all over the place. It is, right? Yeah. And their ability to work together or form a camaraderie. Instead, we get these weird subplots with the nun, you know, Freddie's mother, apparently, and other asides, like the stupid horner, horny orderly. When those moments and that time spent could have been taken back to our characters, of which there are so many already. You know, I think of movies like The Matrix, you know, or others like, hey, you're you're having to learn to exist within these new skills and abilities and understandings, uh, breaking your mind a little bit, you know, and recontextualizing the world like in The Matrix. Right. Like they they doubled down on that concept in The Matrix versus like they could have done it here a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, and they didn't. They didn't really run with the most intriguing things and they kept it a little bit too much on Freddie. When we've talked about this recently, like if you doubled down on the movie monster instead of talking about the characters, they had more gold to mine there and they probably didn't even realize it. I think that's true. And I I, I think that all the points you make are very, very valid. Freddy, Freddy's mythology will take care of itself. Exactly. The Predator, same thing. Yep, you know, exactly. Aliens, like, xenomorphs, they, they take care of their own mythology, make it, make us care about the fucking characters and mm-hmm. do whatever you can to double down on that. They, they, didn't quite get there for me. And they do for me. So, like, I, I gave this movie four stars on this rewatch, right? And I'm, I'm sure that they were... A half star that, higher than me. I know. <laughs> I and I was trying really hard. So, I'm like, my first instinct, obviously, is, like, five five stars for this. But all of that, like, that whole extra star would be Nostalgia Boner, right? Yeah. And there's still, like, some throbbing Nostalgia Boner in that four star rating. Just because it's almost impossible for me at this point in my life, like like 30 years plus after seeing it for the first time and loving it, you know, like I, I cannot separate myself and be objective from it. I just, I like this movie a well, lot. Well, It's also like, there's also like that nostalgia boner piece of it, but there's also like, okay, let's rate a modern aircraft versus like the Wright brothers, uh-huh. what the Wright brothers built, you know, one is more important than it is a good aircraft. You know, am I going to rate comfort value and like my mid, my, my, my mid flight, dinner on the Wright brothers. No, I'm not, you know, well, and of course not. So if you're rating things all together, you know, on every movie in the world on this five point scale, it has to exist somewhere. So context matters with ratings. So it is a four star for you and it is a three and a half for me. And, and I think that's that true. Makes sense. No, and it does. And the thing is, is that like all the points that you made are valid. I mean, like I really enjoy Heather Lang and Capo, that character being back in this movie, but I think that she was kind of like underused and poorly written. They just like, they wanted to have something familiar. And she wasn't in. directed as like, she was kind of wooden in the first movie, but she, yeah. you could tell she was a lot more closely and intimately directed. Yes. And he did not do that for her as much. This well, time. and I think, I feel like we've seen her in things post this movie. Where she's she's much done better. a much better job, yes. you know? And so like some of it may be like circumstantial 
to her being there. It could be the script. It could be the way she was directed. I mean, we don't really know. Right. And I, I, I feel like some of the acting in this movie is really good, but like, this is probably the first time in a conversation about this film where I think, you know, they, they need to spend more time with these characters. You're right. Like, that's what this movie is missing. I'm really glad that they, they took Freddie in this kind of direction and they, they were a little bit more Freddie centric. Right. Cause I feel like, I feel it's, like it's also a testament to the characters yeah. and the archetypes that they, they displayed, you know, um, there was a lot there and we, they left us wanting more. And I feel like to the degree of, they should have given us more because they created such good archetypes. And I feel like if this movie were remade it was today, kind of thrown away. it would be remade in such a way that it would be like just universally good i don't like, know they could fuck it up man I, so I mean like they could make some changes i mean i feel like i feel like today if this movie were made we'd have a, like a, pro, a predominantly gay character right which i think it needs like i feel like there, there's an african-american character in this movie and he survives yeah but and he's, in the he's next a little one. problematic in this movie too. yeah we didn't touch on that right? you know and you and see I, how I, he was actually described mm-hmm. in the original synopsis like uh, and then the script and stuff is like uh you know a troubled you know, tough off the street, sometimes prone to violence. Right. And I'm like, these are kind of racist stereotypes. Exactly. We can do better than that. We certainly can. So I feel spend more time with that character, spend more time with all these characters and give us the reason why they're in this asylum. Like spend more time, give us more backstory. Let us know why like their, their powers or their warrior qualities or what they are in the dream. Also, I needed like a Freddy's revenge style shower scene with Lawrence Fishburne and they did not give it to me. I really needed to see some Lawrence Fishburne ass in this for sure and that leads to our next question then <laughs> who's the hottest guy in dream warriors larry fishburne larry fishburne 100 percent. like he's so good looking in this movie he's good looking now and this probably got him in the matrix. I don't know. <laughs> but I was just like, I was watching this, this last night and I was just like, Oh good Lord. He's so good looking like for sure. And he's caring. He cares about them. He's a good character. Like he really is like the nicest person in this movie. Do you know what his first movie was? No. Is it porn? He had to lie about his age. Kind of like in the movie. What? Apocalypse now. Oh my God. Really? Yeah. He was young. Oh shit. Playing a soldier and the soldier's line, I think was even like, yeah, I lied that I was 18. I was 16. And like, I think he was actually 14 in real life. And he had lied to Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> I love Lawrence Fishburne though. I think he's, he's always a good. really good actor. It's really, really good. And he is just hot in this movie. And like, there really was no other option for me really. So I don't know. Not that orderly. It was gross. We should make a sequel where he is in it. You know, he's remembering all those patients. That's right. Mm-hmm. Just, That's just our next in. Just a monologue of him talking. Here's oh, the hypnosil. <laughs> the thing is, this hospital will come back in other like movies in the franchise. Yeah. They talk about hypnosil later on in the franchise. <laughs> I think especially in like Freddy versus Jason. I so, saw that medicine name and I was like, okay, that's no, that's hypnosil. not real. <laughs> I mean, like everything that dream warrior starts will come back later on. Like, I don't know. It's just a really good formative movie in this franchise. And I think for eighties in general, this is a very eighties movie. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
Well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on Dream Warriors. As always, we would like to know what you think about the movie and our conversation about it. You can find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, and X. I'm still not quite used to saying those. <laughs> no. And you can email us at tiredqueensatfilmflamers.com or call our hotline at 972-666-7733. Mm, call me and I'll open up my big tongue-tied hole for you and we'll play Little Dead Piggy together. I don't <laughs> what? <laughs> I was going to say something like Mmm, puppeteer my spoiled piglet. Mmm. <laughs> yeah, I got nothing else. In my dreams, I'm beautiful. <laughs> uh, we have some more content coming out for you on the main feed, so next week, stay tuned when we continue our conversation into the franchise and talk about A Nightmare on Elm Street 4. The Dream Master. It just celebrated its 35th anniversary. And then over on Patreon, I think we're going to follow up with The Dream Child. Mm-hmm. Number five. Number five. Mm-hmm. Before we get to the really interesting ones next year, I guess. Yeah. Well, the other ones. <laughs> well, no, because when we get to uh, Freddy's Dead, which is not as interesting, but uh, we get to... Oh, New Nightmare. New Nightmare, which is very important. I love New Nightmare. Yeah, so we'll be wrapping up the franchise next yeah. year. We're beginning, this is the beginning of the end. Yeah, we've, we've begun the descent. Yeah, but I have to talk about Freddy versus Jason at some point. <laughs> no, we're doing that. We are doing that. <laughs> All right, Chris. I think it's time for us to um, not take some hypnosil yeah. so we can have some sweet dreams. I kind of hate saying sweet dreams when we're talking about like fucking Freddy Krueger. It seems. Well, what are we supposed to say? Shitty dreams or shitty dreams? No dreams. Rotting pig again. dreams. Rotting pig dreams. Hello, piglet. <laughs> oh, rate and review us on iTunes. Thank you. Oh shit. Deek. Deek. <laughs> <laughs>